You know, frankly, I, it's a wonder to me that y'all are here just at all tonight. Um, uh, simply because college, college really does tend to be the time when people kind of walk away from the faith. Am I wrong about that? You know, for many of you, you're having a problem or you're going to have a problem with the intellectual side of Christianity. It just can't make sense to you. You can't make heads or tails of it. For others of you, it just, it's just too complicated. And quite frankly, you've discovered that it's a whole lot easier just to, to kind of live the unexamined life and to float along with whatever else the crowd is doing. But frankly, that's really nothing new. That happens all the time in college where people's faith tends to crack and tends to crumble under the weight of it. What I do think is unique about your generation, however, is the response that people have to some of those doubts about the truthfulness of Christianity. Because so oftentimes, many of you came to Ole Miss, and it wasn't like you wanted to leave the faith of your parents behind. You didn't want to, and it sort of, it even kind of troubles you a little bit when people kind of take shots at your faith. But for almost, uh, uh, you know, two decades now, for over two decades actually for me, I feel like I hear a common refrain coming from people who come to college and just have a hard time holding on to their faith. Look, think about what it's going to be like this week and this semester in dealing with, let's say, your history professor who stands up and says something to the effect of, uh, look, I know that you've brought up with your Christianity, but look, Christianity was a political movement. It it was basically owned by a bunch of uh, people who suppressed and controlled and manipulated their way to to a purely political movement. And frankly, it's not cosmically important. You'll have a philosophy professor that says, look, religion is nothing more than just you, the psyche, trying to work out its various, um, uh, uh, its various in- in- inadequacies and its insecurities. And it's what comes out of us. But, you know, it's not like it's something that's true or anything. And then, of course, you run across your psychology class who says, look, religion is nothing more than people's way of trying to cope on the inside and deal with their life because it's so insecure. But there's nothing true about it. And again, there's nothing new about those objections. They've been going on for like 2,000 years. But what I think is new is the refrain that we constantly hear from people that says something to the effect of, well, yeah, sure, there's a lot of reasons to doubt the truth of the Bible, but you know what, Les? That's why we have to have faith. You see, if all the answers were easy and all the answers were obvious, then, you know, we wouldn't have to believe anything. But see, I'm supposed to believe things. And so, hey, the fact that it doesn't make sense to people, all the better, right? But I want you to think about the logic of this. You know, on the one hand, it's as if they're saying there are the facts of life, uh, truths, you know, scientific analysis, some, you know, verifiable sort of things that really happened. But then on the other hand, you have faith. An intellectual sort of leap into the dark where you just sort of embrace the absurd and and own it as your own. Is that faith? And the idea, of course, is attained when you have more belief in you than you do the facts. A number of years ago, there was a memoir that I read by a guy named Rick Bragg. And the name of the memoir was called All Over But the Shouting. And it was about his life growing up in the mountains of northeast Alabama. Uh, his mother uh, was the subject of the, of, the, of the memoir, and it really was an admirable writing. He loved his mother, but his mother was a true sort of mountain Pentecostal, um, and he admired his mother's faith. 
but he just couldn't accept it. But it wasn't because of some intellectual argument. The reason why I couldn't embrace his mother's faith was because he said, it just never happened to me. I waited. I kind of wanted it to happen to me, but it just never did. I wonder if that's the way you've ever felt. <laughs> Have you ever thought to yourself that one of, the, one of the things that you wrestle with when you get to college is it's like, I don't know, the church stuff that my parents made me go through, it, it just doesn't fit me anymore. It's not like me. It doesn't really hang in. Faith is for the faithful, not me. And so many people walk away from faith because of it. But look, the series that we are going to begin this semester, I think, is introduced in such a way that goes directly against that kind of thinking. Because the author of the book of Luke, Dr. Luke, talks in no ways in that particular way. In other words, he says, look, accept or reject Christianity. But it only makes sense that you should do so on the basis of that book's uh, claims, of, the, of, that, of that religion's holy book, the Bible. In other words, if you're going to walk away from Christianity while you're in college, do so on the basis of what it really says and not on the basis of something that it's not. Because what Luke is not saying <laughs> Is he's not saying, well, look, I know that this whole Jesus guy and the whole deal, like, really, we're kind of making it up. Wink, wink, wink. But you know, doesn't make you feel good to believe it. He doesn't say anything like that. And as a matter of fact, he says just the opposite. He says, look, to come in to understand what he was really about, you've got to see at least three things. Three things tonight that I want to throw at you to get us thinking about this semester when it comes to grasping this truth. Why would anyone find Jesus compelling at all. I, I want to be honest about this. Even, even for the most religious of you that are like, <laughs> what is all this talk about not believing? Huh? You know who you are. Even for you, have you ever stopped and asked yourself, why am I doing this? Why have I gotten so worked up about this? And I would even say to you, why is it that these people 2,000 years ago would find it in themselves to not only follow this man, not only go to church, but to give their lives for him. And I know your answer. Your answer is sort of something to the effect of, well, because they were religious less. That's, that's what they did. They were, they were awesome like that. That's why we put them in the Bible. But actually, the Bible doesn't let you think that. Because the Bible is always telling how, much, how idiots these people are. They're always bumbling. They're always messing up. So why? And Luke gives us our first clue in three things. Number one. First of all, Luke does not buy into this whole fact versus faith thing. Luke does not buy into the fact versus faith thing. Right off the bat, he doesn't come to you and say, look, if you're really going to be a Christian, you need to leave your mind at the door. He doesn't say that. He says, look, there were eyewitnesses to the stuff that we're claiming. Uh, we followed things very closely and we created what we called an orderly account so that you can have certainty about what you believed. In other words, people who are knowingly writing stories about stuff that they made up or imagined don't invite you to come and examine the facts about it. They don't do careful investigations and report to you that they did a careful investigation. They hide that. They keep it down. They keep it to the side. But look, before you graduate from this institution, you are going to have a professor say to you, hey, look, I don't mind if you're into religion. That's cool for you if you're a faithful person. But in this classroom, we're going to stick with the facts. It's going to draw those sharp lines between the two. But the main problem with that reasoning is 
and we don't have time to kind of go into this fully, is that if you really begin to think about it, the facts aren't really just things that kind of stand out there on their own, are they? If you really start to press yourself for it, your faith actually undergirds everything, even your rationality. That is, when somebody stops and thinks about the reason why they think about what they're thinking about, <laughs> and they start to look for the ultimate foundations for why they're thinking these thoughts, for why they reason this way, for why I'm even alive at all, you suddenly come back to a faith assumption that cannot be proved. Proven. Now you may be thinking to yourself, mm, I don't think that's right. Great. Test us. <laughs> Test the scripture to see if that's the case. What do you mean, Les, that even my reasoning is based upon some faith assumption? The Christian does not come to the world and say, jettison your mind, forget the facts, and just believe. They actually say, look at the foundations of your own thinking and see if it can account for the world around you. In a truthful and a meaningful way. In other words, a Christian is one who comes in and says, actually, from the premise, no God, I can't make sense of the world around me. But if I assume that there is a God, if I place my faith in him, suddenly my mental capacities, my choices, my feelings, it all comes together as one. Again, you don't have to believe that tonight. I'm just saying that's the way Luke is arguing for us, that facts and faith are not opposed to each other. Secondly, second big thing that Luke says is he's offering us a reliable account of Jesus. But this is a huge barrier for people when it comes to Christianity because it's a religion of the book. Christianity is a religion of the book. The Bible is a big deal in Christianity. And you are okay to ask the question while you're in college, okay, Les, but can I trust that book? Can I really know that that's true? Can I really see it as something true? And look, your generation loves to kind of see through the smoke and mirrors. That is a big thing about your generation. You're very skeptical, really, about everything. Uh, is this a real deal that you're putting in front of me? I want to see everyone's motives. Tim Keller actually says there are a number of good reasons to believe why the Bible is a faithful account. First one goes like this. He says, look, if you study these accounts, you'll realize that these stories were written way too early for us to think that they were just made up. Now, what does that mean, too early? Well, it means that we know that these letters were written and recorded within 30 or 40 years after the events that they are describing to be true. Now, why would that be important? Well, think about it for a second. Let's say, for the sake of illustration, that I decided to start a new cult at Old Miss. Okay? It's the Les Newsome cult. Can't wait to tell you about it. And basically, it's claiming that 40 years ago, here on the Old Miss campus, back in the late 1970s, there was an individual who came to campus... He was healing people left and right. He was doing miraculous deeds like walking on water and floating through the air or something like that. And then he actually was killed by a mob. And, and three days later, he rose again from the dead. And you should come and follow this person. What if I started claiming that? My guess is you would look and say, hmm, okay, 40 years ago. That was a while ago. Who's really that old, right? But then you would say, wait a minute, though. I actually think there are people still here who were there in the late 70s. And you know what? You would be right. I was here, what, 17 years ago. I can give you a little bit of date on that. And so what you would do is you would go to those people and you would say, <clears throat> I'm just curious. Like, there's a guy walking around campus and he's saying that, like, there was this guy who, like, healed people and stuff. Like, is that true? 
If everybody who was here in the 70s came up and said, no, I was here. I was a senior. Man, I was a 5L back then. That didn't happen. I just chose 5L out of the blue. There's no, no, there's no affiliation up here. No, that didn't happen. How quickly would my little movement get off the ground? Not very quickly, would it? Because there'd be so many people around who could easily falsify my data. So here's my question for you. How is it that Christianity got off the ground as quickly as it did? And if you're saying to yourself, oh, they were just superstitious that way. No, they weren't. <laughs> they were just like you. They wanted proof. You want to know how I know they were proof? Because Luke offers it. Luke is like, we investigated it. We looked into it, and here it is. That is a strong evidence for the veracity of these uh, documents. Secondly, though, Keller goes on to talk about the fact that there's just weird details in these accounts. You ever notice this? Like when you're reading through the Bible and, 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 and suddenly you get to like say uh, uh, Mark chapter 4 and it says that Jesus was asleep in a boat when a big storm came. Anybody ever read that story? And there's one point where it says that Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat on a cushion. And you're like, so he was on a cushion. That must be important. What's the significance of the cushion? Are you ready for this? You know what the significance of the cushion is? Nothing. Zero. There's another place at the end of John where Jesus instructs his, his, his followers after he's risen from the dead to go fishing. And they catch a big, huge catch. And it says, and they were like, what was it? 153 fish. And for years, Christians have been going, what's the significance of 153? 153. It must mean something. 153. 15 and 3. What's that mean? You know what it means? Nothing. All it means is, is that people were actually there. Ladies, bear with me. You're having a conversation with someone, and you're talking about someone else. And you're like, you know what? And she was there and everything. And I mean, she just walked up to me wearing that blue dress you know, that she always wears. And she said to me, blah, 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 blah. Now, why did you include that about her blue dress? That's a pretty good invitation on the boat. It's pretty good. You can think of it. Why did you include that detail about the blue dress? Because you were there. When things actually happen, you throw in details that aren't necessarily part of the story, but they themselves demonstrate that you actually saw it. So when Mark is telling the story, he's like, and he was asleep uh, on a cushion. Y'all remember the cushion? Hey, disciples, y'all remember the cushion? He, he was on a cushion. How many fish did we catch that day? Dude, it was 153. I wrote it down. It's unbelievable. 153. That's why he writes it down. It shows that they were there. Y'all, here's the point. Christians did not go walking into the Bible and say to themselves, I don't know, maybe a bunch of medieval monks put these books together in the, in the past. No. No, these are reliable documents written just years after Jesus was there that we can trust and give ourselves to. Thirdly and finally, Luke invites his people into certainty. Man, this is a big deal. To me, the final claim that Luke's, Luke makes there in verse 4 that's the most daring is when he says, I want for you to be certain of the things that you're talking about. Now, he's talking to this guy, um, Theophilus, um, and, and which we know we think was kind of a wealthy, rich dude because he calls him almost excellent. So he's kind of a man of power, position. Theophilus literally means um, uh, God, the friend of God. He was a God-fearer, so he wasn't a Jewish person. He wasn't sort of in the religious elite. He was outside the camp. But he looks at him and says, I want you to have certainty about these things you believe. You actually can translate that word infallibility. He says, I want you to walk away and be absolutely certain that this is true. I don't want you to doubt. 
I don't want you to sort of get, get thrown off of this. The whole reason Luke does this is to help them know the certain. But here's the thing. What's weird is how the certainty is going to come. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Luke uh, is a guy named Michael Wilcock. He's, a, he's an Episcopalian uh, minister who wrote a wonderful uh, uh, commentary. And he said this. He goes, how are people going to get certain that there really is, that all the stuff that Luke wrote is true? He doesn't invite them into some mystical experience. Mm. <gasps> y'all, do y'all feel that? I think that's God. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Nor does he look at them and invite them sort of uh, into a study of deep philosophy. No. You know what he does? Just come and read. I want you for a little bit to immerse yourself in the story of this man. And as you do, if you do, you're actually going to come to know the most basic certainties of life because you will have gotten to know this man. Look, for so many of you, this is where you are. You wish so bad. You really do wrestle with doubt. And you think to yourself, oh, God, if you would just like, show me a sign. If you just give me something tangible, and maybe it's a good thing. Maybe you wish that your, your grandmother would get healed or, 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 or that your, your boyfriend or girlfriend would get back together with you. And you pray earnestly as you can that those things would happen. And he's just silent. You want a mystical experience. You want to feel it. People say, well, you have head knowledge, but you don't have heart knowledge. Don't listen to those people. What we do to get certainty, Luke says, is to read the story again and again and again. Immerse yourself in the story and the life of this man. Because when Luke comes along, he did not sit down and write a three-step plan for having a massive mystical experience with God. Nor did he give you a perfectly logical philosophical proof that every single professor in the world must acquiesce to. No, he gave us a story. He gave us stories. Keller is always quoting uh, Dick Lucas, an Anglican minister in, in, in Britain, who once said, look... <laughs> God did not give his people an airtight argument. He gave his people an airtight person. Wow. An airtight person. You know what that means then? It means that the point of what Jesus came to do was not about his teachings, but it was his actions. It's not Jesus' teachings that save you. It's what he did that saves you. In every other religion, what's significant about their religious leader are the things they taught. And if you want to join those religions, you simply follow the rules of what they taught. The Buddha shows you a path. Allah lays down his will. Do this and you will live, they say. It's while you live that saves you. And Jesus comes along and says, none of those things are going to save you. But come unto me. Everybody who's weary... And heavy laden. You know what I've got for you? Rest. Rest for your souls. Christianity is completely the opposite. Of course there's teachings that Jesus gave in the gospel. Of course. But that's not what it is. Fundamentally, fundamentally, it's a story. It's about, Luke says, the things accomplished among us. Isn't that a weird way to talk about things? What do you mean things accomplished? What kinds of things? <gasps> Come back this semester and you'll find out. Those are the things accomplished. It's a weird way to say it, but what he means is that Jesus came to do something for you, not merely to instruct you how to live. When I was in seminary, I had a friend of mine who got uh, married before I did. 
And I remember during his engagement, him sort of bursting into our dorm room uh, in grad school, uh, completely distraught. Now, never mind what the issue was, but he and his fiance had gotten in a fight. And it was a fight that was so profound that it really had threatened to shake like the very foundations of their relationship. Like they were talking, they may end this whole thing. And so I sat up with him that night and listened. I tried to be the good listening ear and everything. And I was, I was lost. I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. This is a, this is, that's a real problem you got there. And so after they got married, this thing hung in the back of my imagination. So that when I saw him just a few weeks after, actually could just a couple of months after his wedding, I brought that up. I, I, you know, I came up to him and I was like, man, dude, all I remember was that night when you came into the dorm room. And man, you were not in a good place. Like, what kind of effect did that have on your marriage? I will never forget this. He, he looked off into the heavens and he was like, oh, yeah. Like he was remembering that it was a problem. Yes, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it really hadn't come up that much. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Devastated. And you know what I learned that time? I learned... That there's some things about marriage that you're really not going to get until you're in it. It's almost as if marriage kind of comes with its own maturing mechanism sort of built right in. Don't get me wrong. You need to prepare yourself for this. Get pre-marriage counseling, please. Think about it before you marry. Please. But here's the crazy thing. There's things that you'll never understand until you're in that relationship. It's just hard, y'all. I think Jesus is saying the same thing. If you're standing on the outside of the faith tonight, or you hear the clarion call of doubt in your imagination, Jesus says, look, don't go looking for an airtight argument. Come and find me. Come dive in to me. And you're thinking to yourself, uh, I don't know what that is. Like, what do you mean dive in? Dive in how? Ready for this? Come back next week. And the week after that, and go to small group Bible study. Freshman, I'm going to be in here, Lord willing, every Tuesday afternoon. Here in this place. Come join us. We're going to talk about marriage. <laughs> and, and dating and sex. Right? And the freshmen come a-running. Like they'll beat down the door, right? <laughs> come to a small group. Like study the Bible. Find a church that teaches the Bible. And go. And join it. And become a part of their body. Like... Start a, start a fellowship group with some of the interns and the other leaders that are here. It's one of those things where you try it on. And having done so, you begin to discover that there's actually a person there in the midst of it. Look, y'all, here's what I simply want to lay out there. This story was contained by a bunch of men who once they lived and watched the story of Jesus interact with their lives... They turned their lives from simple peasants to people that changed the world. Like you're sitting here because of those men tonight. Aren't you even curious? When I was sitting where you were when I was in college, I remember it vividly. I started thinking like, oh, you're right. I really wish that I was that faithful, but I'm not. I'll be better, I promise. Don't think that. What a waste. That guilt is going to take you nowhere, I promise you. You know what I want you to do? I want you to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't feel that way ever about God or Jesus. But why do they? 
Is there something in here that I might have missed? Who is this Jesus person? Because this is my promise. I exist. And my job exists to make sure that Wednesday in and Wednesday night, at least while it's under my watch, there's going to be somebody at this microphone every Wednesday talking about Jesus. And it won't stop on my watch, I promise. Because you need it. And if you can feel inside of you the slightest bit of curiosity, (laughs) maybe you could entertain the possibility that it might be that certainty is more after you than you are after it.